Good morning. It's great to be back. I always do say I love St. John. So, let's hop right into it. We begin or continue our series. I'm beginning. You're continuing. Our series where we sit at the feet of Jesus and we listen to his life-giving word of truth in the Sermon on the Mount. And before we get started in the text, we should note how the text starts with a so or a therefore, whichever translation that you are reading. And when you see a therefore, it is very important that you know that the following phrase will be based on things that were said before. So Jesus starts out with therefore, and he's continuing off of what he had just said in the earlier verses. How God gives so richly to us. How he pours out his grace and his mercy and his blessings upon us. And he truly does spoil us in ways that we would never deserve. He continues, So therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's the golden rule. One that almost everybody knows or knows of, but it's a little harder to follow than it is to hear it. It reminds me of a time I got to observe a marriage retreat. And over the weekend, there was this couple who was preaching, teaching, praying for everybody, and they were just you know, hitting it out of the park. But they reminded every single couple there multiple times throughout the weekend. Now, I'm sure you're here, and you're hearing us uh, giving all this advice, preaching and teaching, and you're thinking the whole time, oh, this is good stuff. I really hope my spouse is listening. I really hope that they take it to heart and that they change and then our marriage could be better. And they say, stop that. That's not what this weekend is about. This weekend is for you to hear and to take to heart and to change and to improve your marriage with a Christ-centered attitude. That's a little harder for us to hear because really most problems in marriage are because of your spouse, right? No one disagrees? No? That's, that's fine. Eh, we'll take it. This is for you, and the same thing goes with the golden rule. It's not just for us to hear. It's not just for us to agree with or like or think other people should follow it more. It is for us. And Jesus is speaking to you, and he calls you to action. He's summoning up all of the laws and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament, all of God's commands into this simple phrase. Because people are naturally really slow to comprehend exactly who God is and how to follow him. And that's especially true in the time that Jesus walked on earth. The people don't understand who God is. The Pharisees have taken the law, something that was given to us that is beautiful, that is spiritual, that is for our benefit, that's supposed to be weaving into our lives and our hearts and thoughts and actions. And what did we do with it? We turned it into something rigid, something mechanical, a list of do's and don'ts, something that we have to follow to avoid judgment. And it becomes a nuisance. It becomes a burden. It becomes something that we try to tiptoe around doing just enough so that God won't judge us and the bare minimum so that he'll bless us. And here Jesus is, putting things into an all-new perspective with a principle that is so old yet timeless, that is so simple yet universal. He's correcting what we thought the law was 
and he's adjusting the attitude of our hearts. He's telling us that the law is clearly for our benefit and the benefit of those around us because it is God's good will. And we do that in response to God's grace and mercy and love. Never to earn his love or grace or mercy because we respond to how good he is. There's only one little problem. It is a rule that we like to hear and agree with, as I said, and you'll hear me say it again, but it's so much harder to follow. But God's law isn't meant to be praised. It's meant to be practiced. And it's tough, and we don't. We prefer not to, actually, whether we admit it or not, because at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, we do not have our sights set on the will of God. What do I have my sights set on? Well, my own will. Because I always know just a little bit better than God. Don't I? And don't you? That's because deep down in our hearts, we're sinful. Our hearts are tainted. We point ourselves against God, whether we're aware of it or not, because we understand as Christians that sin is not a list of things that we've done wrong or a list of things that we've failed to do, but that it is a condition that we are born into something that we can't shake off of us, something that affects every single thought, word, and action that we commit to. That's why we don't lead ourselves, because otherwise we go astray. That's why we don't take things into our own hands, because we end up leaving a wake of damage and destruction and pain because we thought we knew better and we thought that God didn't have control of the situation. Because we're stubborn. We desire to be independent when we're not made to be independent. We're arrogant. We're selfish. We're conceited. We have selfish ambitions. That's a little harsh, isn't it? Maybe too harsh? If you don't believe me, take this for an example. How many of you know high schoolers or students or young adults who are active in the community and volunteering? You can raise your hands. Come on. Yeah, see, we got, we got some, and it's good, and they exist, and that's great. They should be serving in their community. But if you know a high schooler, or you are one, or you're the parent of one, can you honestly say that they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, and it has nothing to do with how good it looks on their college application? Yeah. I know my volunteering had a lot to do with that in high school. Have you ever worked just a little extra hard, gone the extra mile in the job, never hoping for a promotion? Can you give charitably without having your name attached to some sort of sponsorship? Can you serve selflessly without having your pictures posted on social media when you come back from your mission trip? Can you give without ever even hoping to receive in return later on? It's hard, and even our best deeds are ruined by selfish ambitions and ulterior motives. Not because you're especially evil, because you're human. Now, a lot of people think that the wide path will do just fine, but it won't. 
They think as long as I live a good life, as long as I don't directly murder someone, as long as I don't steal anything of real value, as long as I don't lie too much, basically, as long as I do more good than I do evil, well, how could God reject me? That doesn't sound like the God that I imagine. But again, it doesn't work that way. Because your primary focus when you live that way is on yourself. Because you act and live towards your own benefit, using what you think is the law to do the bare minimum to be blessed and to avoid judgment. But to stay on that narrow path, to enter that small gate that Christ describes, you must have Jesus Christ in your heart. And the only way to truly know if he is there and present with you is by looking at the fruit that you bear in your life. Remember, as Jesus says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. But we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. Here's what's challenging, but also brilliant about this golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It forces us to identify with other people, to put ourselves in their shoes, to be people who who live with empathy, to take into consideration their lives and their feelings, their fears and insecurities, their hopes and dreams, their circumstances, their sins, their faith, absolutely everything. It forces us to see people the way that God sees them. As children to be loved, it's the same way that God sees us. And when we see them that way, we're compelled to act with grace and with mercy and with love the same way that God acts towards us. But we don't want to get into that in the first place because grace is hard, it's inconvenient. It takes effort. People don't deserve grace. It's not justice. It's not fair. It's not what people should get according to our sinful hearts and our reason. But apparently, God thinks otherwise when he deals with us and he deals with everybody else. And it takes a healthy amount of trust to admit that God is right on this one. Jesus goes on to talk about wolves in sheep's clothing, about false prophets, about those who pervert his gospel. Well, who are they? What do they do? How do we recognize them in our lives? It's a loaded question. First, we have those who don't love Christ. He's not in their hearts. They have no respect or reverence for God. They don't have faith. But still they pretend because they want fame or wealth or popularity or status. Maybe they're doing it to be spiteful. Maybe they're doing it to be destructive. Whatever their motives may be, they certainly exist. But there also are those who don't even know that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Those who think that they are following God and acting out the will of Christ in their lives, and yet they stand for hatred. Now we know who these are no matter which side because they act and live in opposition to the gospel. They bear bad fruit. And when you look at them, 
Their actions, they don't stem from love and humility and mercy and grace, and they don't do unto others as they would like to have them do unto them. They don't treat others the way that God has treated them. And so when you look at someone's life, and lives, and you see that there is a part of their person or their entire person that is consumed by hatred, when you see their actions causing pain and death and destruction without a care, that they are bearing bad fruit. But the tricky part for me is this. If there are people who do not know that they're wolves in sheep's clothing, how do I know that I'm not one of them? How do I know that I'm truly following God? How do I know that I'm not perverting the gospel and following my own way and my own will while claiming that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, do the same thing. Look at the fruits of your labor. Look at the works of love in your life. Look at the grace and the mercy and the love that you show and look at your own heart. That's how you know if you are genuinely a follower, a follower of Christ. How do we stay on that narrow path? How do we enter that small gate? It's by daily repentance. It's by self-examination. It's about approaching God with humility and respect, confessing our sins to him and receiving renewed forgiveness each and every day letting it shape us and direct us toward that narrow gate and that salvation. We do it by remembering our baptism and whose children we are, knowing good and well that we are children of God and children of love and never children of the world or children of hatred. So how do we do unto others as we would have them do unto us? acting in love and mercy and grace when it comes to contemporary events. When we look at the news and we see disaster after disaster, atrocious crimes here and there, what about Charlottesville? How do we act in that situation in grace and love and mercy that we've received so richly as we spread it? Now let me be clear, racism nationalism, supremacy, and bigotry have absolutely no heart, uh, place in the heart of a Christian. They're not to be tolerated, and they, are, should, they should be worked against by each and every single one of us. Because we should love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, whether they are part of a majority or a minority population. We should stand up to them, and we have to, because God calls us to. Because if we were in their situation. We would want our neighbors to stand up for our justice and for our freedom just as much. I'd be surprised to find a person in these pews who would disagree with me because we're all called by the gospel to love our neighbors. We all stem from the same man and from the same, same woman. We are all members of the same human race. And the love of God and his salvation, they are extended to all people, of all nations, of all cultures, of all languages. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel. And multiple times in scripture, we see God standing up for all people. As he calls out Jonah on his racial prejudice when he will not preach to the nation, uh, the city of Nineveh. We have Paul reprimanding Peter who stopped eating with the Gentiles out of fear that he would be judged by the Jews. 
So not only is universal love the correct thing to do, it is godly, and it is God's will, and it is what we are called to do. And if people don't recognize the need for this love, if they don't agree with it, well, it's time to examine your heart and your fruit and really see if Christ is truly in your heart. In the meantime, we stand with those who are oppressed because it's how we show love and grace and mercy. Because the gospel is not just a means to heaven. It's not just salvation for the sinner, but it is justice to the oppressed. It's victory for the defeated. It is adoption for the orphaned. It's bread to the hungry and living water to the thirsty. It's joy to the mourning. It's comfort for the miserable and the suffering. It is grace to those who don't deserve it. And it is mercy to each and every person who is guilty. And as Christians, everything we do and say and think should flow from what Jesus has first done for us and how richly the Father has blessed us. When we talk about extending grace, of course, we mean those who are offended, those who are oppressed, those who are put down and stood against. But how do we treat the people who are the oppressors? How do we treat those who don't follow this rule? How do we treat those who behave toward other people with hatred and ignorance without Christ in their heart? Well, what does Jesus say? How do we apply this golden rule? How would we like to be treated? If you were wrong, if you were raised up to learn hatred for others and you've had that behavior rewarded and praised all of your life, if you were so enveloped by your own sin that you can't recognize it or even know what righteousness is, if you thought that what you were doing was what God called you to and you were following the will of Jesus, how would you want to be treated even if you were wrong? This is where we all hear the golden rule. But it's so hard to follow and to practice because we just want to lash out and have our own way. But I know in my heart, if I was wrong, if I was in deep sin, I'd want to be treated kindly. I would want somebody to love me enough and care for me enough to show me another way. I would want somebody to love me enough to point out my own sin and speak the truth to me in love and stick around long enough for me to actually understand. I'd want to finally encounter who God truly is as, to oppose, uh, as opposed to the fake God that I've been worshiping this whole time. I'd want to encounter grace. I would want my heart changed in ways that I didn't know were imaginable yet. But how will I know if nobody teaches me? How can I grow closer to the body of Christ if every single member keeps rejecting me? How can I know and show love and grace when it has not been shown to me first? I want there to be no misunderstanding. There's no place for racism or bigotry or supremacy or nationalism in God's church. And those who commit crimes and acts of hatred are fully held accountable and deserve punishment and justice under the law. But the hard part for us as Christians and as sinful humans to understand is that we need to love people, 
even in the midst of their horrible sin, instead of condemning them. Yeah, they're sinful. They're guilty and they're lost. But don't we believe in a God who loved us while we were still dead in our sin? Don't we believe in a God whose grace changes lives and hearts, making people forever changed? Don't we believe in his only son who is a lamp unto the feet of the lost and a shepherd to those who just want to return home? When it comes to our enemies, when it comes to those who are wrong, we're not looking for annihilation. We're not looking for destruction. We're not looking to push them outside of our culture and out of our lives. We are looking for the transformative power that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can achieve. Because only with love and mercy and grace will we have peace and harmony and the kingdom of God realized in our lives. So whether you're dealing with the oppressed or the oppressor, the hungry or the glutton, the poor or the rich, remember that the gospel has called you to speak the truth and love to everyone. That it has called you by name in your baptism to make disciples of every single nation, including your enemies and those who are disenfranchised by them. It calls us to follow God's law in every single way as Jesus has summed up in these two phrases. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And remember in absolutely every aspect of your life that following God's law is not mechanical. It's not rigid. It's not a burden. And it's not an obligation It's a freedom that we live in as a result of how good God is to us every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for the opportunity to worship here today. And I ask that you bless us with an extra portion of your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see the love and the grace and the mercy that you've shown to us first through the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the blessings that you pour out on us every day, even though we don't deserve it, even though we're sinful. And we ask that you would help us to see how we can spread that love and that grace and that mercy to absolutely everyone. Not just those who we love, but those who we have contempt for. Shape our hearts to act as you would act and to spread your love to every single nation. Lord, in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.